hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to Tony Danker. Tony is Chief Executive of Be The Business and also the former Head of Strategy for The Guardian. So more of Tony in a moment. Firstly, though, it's the last show of 2018. So I just wanted to say a big thank you to all of you for tuning into all the episodes of Beyond Busy. It's been a a phenomenal year for the podcast. Really love doing it. And we'll be back in 2019. And just an announcement from me, bit of a plug. Uh, The new version of How to Be a Productivity Ninja is in shops from the 2nd of January. So Go on to Amazon right now, go and pre-order. It's the one with the green cover and uh, you can pre-order your copy of the new revised updated edition of Productivity Ninja. Brand new chapter talking about phone addiction and how to combat that, how to uh, lead a more balanced life with your phone and how, how your phone can support productivity. So loads of really good stuff in there that's new if you're an existing reader of Productivity Ninja and therefore want to buy the new one, keep that in your house and give the old one to someone that you think really needs it. So do that, uh, How to Be a Productivity Ninja, and also obviously in bookshops from uh, 2nd of January. So go and support your local bookstore. Um, Also, um, if you want to come and see me speak, um, I think there are still some tickets for the Action for Happiness free event in London on January the 21st, Monday, January the 21st. Uh, you can see that in the show notes here and also on the show notes for previous episodes and stuff. So um, do go and grab a free ticket to see me uh, do my thing for Action for Happiness, Monday the 21st of January. And also if you're in the Oxford area, I think I'm doing a Q&A at Blackwell's in Oxford on the Thursday of that week, so Thursday the 24th. Um, like it's in my diary, like my publicist hasn't really told me anything about it. So I'm almost certain it is going ahead. So Blackwell's, I think it's around lunchtime and it's the Thursday, the 24th of January, if you're in Oxford. So let's get into the interview with Tony. So Tony is the chief executive of Be The Business. Be The Business is a new organization. They're about a year old and they've been set up with some government money And the idea is to solve what is often referred to as the productivity puzzle. So the whole thing of why is Britain often at the bottom end of these league tables around productivity? How can we solve that? So that is the job of Tony and his team of a fairly small team, 20, 25 people he's got um, working on this huge issue. And actually, this is a theme that comes up quite a lot is Tony's various kind of David versus Goliath uh jobs and you know sort of um one one guy trying to uh, make a big impact on big issues so we talk about uh, the productivity puzzle we talk about being the head of strategy for the guardian in an era where print media is under threat and what does that look like uh, we talk about uh, tony's own view on productivity and also on how to form good teams and a really fun thing, very un-British, terribly un-British thing about how to constructively row within your teams and how to make space for that. So Tony is just full of wisdom, full of stories, really interesting conversation. And you join us in a very, uh, it's a very cold day, uh, Friday, sort of late morning um, in London, Tony's offices. 
and uh, you join us talking about Tony's Christmas party. So let's get into the final episode of 2018. Here's my conversation with Tony Danko. So your uh, Christmas party was Wednesday. Christmas party was Wednesday. And where, where was that? We started in the office at one o'clock with a quiz. Nice. I, I don't know what, by the way, it wasn't my idea, nor was I the question master. And actually, I think our group won, although there was one round where you had to build like the tallest edifice using like straws and paper <laughs> clips. And another team did a better one than us. And I think that's what gave them the edge. So okay. I think actually we won the quiz. Um, this uh, is sounding very much like that episode of The Office. Have you seen... The, you the, can, we, can use office, <laughs> we can use office metaphors. Every time, one of, the, one of the dangers of being the leader of a small organization is that every time you stand up to do something, you become incredibly you, self-conscious that you're sounding like... You David see Brent. David Brent in your head. I, 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 David do, Brent in I do it all the time. It's, I just can't get away from it. But you know, there's the one where they have a big quiz and it's like David Brent wins it every year. And then they, <laughs> oh my God, I just sounded like <laughs> David Brent. It's really interesting. I think the because I, uh, in my job, lots of people ask me, you know, is there a problem with British management? Are we a nation yeah. of David Brents? And I actually think that, uh, and so I always wonder, is David Brent a blessing or a curse for what we're trying to do? And I think it's a blessing because I think that David Brent makes bad management not okay. <laughs> that's true, actually. Uh, so anyway, yeah. that's... Uh, I also think it would be amazing. I've had this sort of business idea for years and never done anything about it, but wouldn't it be great to have an e-learning course or even a sort of face-to-face course where they showed some of the bad practice clips from the office and then just focused on how to do the opposite of that. Because yeah. it'd be so entertaining and people yeah. would love it. I think. We yeah. are the anti-David yeah. Brown, he said, as the man who just <laughs> proclaimed that he should have won the quiz. Oh, dear. Anyway. So, so you did the quiz and then where did, where did, did the quiz from? and uh, we had drinks in the office and then we uh, went to your classic Christmas lunch place around the corner which was actually very nice. The thing we did, which worked very well, which I've never done before. So I've done Secret Santa before. Yeah. But this year, this guy came from a place where you have to buy a funny hat as a Secret Santa (laughs) present. And we had this unveiling of the hats over lunch. And they were all, of course, incredibly stupid, as you can imagine. And it was just incredibly funny and good fun. Nice. I'm now worried that does that also make us like the office as well. But uh, it was great. And then we did that and then we did karaoke and then we went to the pub and then at about 10 o'clock everybody said this nice. is now. We've been drinking for a long time. Did you do karaoke in the office? No, no, no. no. Where was that, that would be was very that, office. Were you at Lucky Voice? We were at Karaoke Box in Smithfield which oh, is nice. just across the road. I am usually Lucky Voice would be my karaoke yeah. destination of choice. Uh yeah, and it was great. And I, I'm a big fan of karaoke, as you know, in as much as you can do organised fun in yeah. offices. Uh, karaoke, as long as you don't bully people who don't want to sing to be there or to sing when they get there, it's just an incredible icebreaker. And you do sing out long. you do lots of group singing, and then yeah. it becomes really fine for everybody to sing, even if you're not good at Nobody, singing. Nobody, there were no yeah. solos. Yeah, um, I'm a big fan of Lucky Voice as well. Think, uh, Lucky Voice is actually a think productive client. So right? we've done some workshops with them. And, um, is and that so that you get discounts? Uh, and then they give us some free rooms, right? No. So that's like... Why didn't I think of yeah. that? <laughs> so it's a really cool uh, client to have. Um, but when well, you're talking about the we, so um, we better talk about where we are and, um, and what you do. So um, be the business. And we're in basically the offices of Audible right that's now, right. part of Amazon, yeah. um, overlooking the Barbican, which you just, as we're making tea, I said... 
I really love the barbecue. And he said, I really hate the architecture of the barbecue. Just to be clear, <laughs> just in case anyone from the barbecue <laughs> is listening, I don't like the architecture. I love the interior. Mm. It's kind of like 60s retro. Yeah, I love it. And it's a brilliant institution. It is. But I'm not yeah. a fan of the concrete. I love just basking in the, on a summer's day, sitting by that little kind of pond bit and just yeah, basking nice. in the concrete. Like, yeah. that's, uh, <laughs> that's all good. Uh, so Be The Business, tell us about um, Be The Business and um, what you're doing. Yeah, Be The Business. So uh, Be The Business was really the brainchild of Charlie Mayfield, who's the chairman of John Lewis, who basically uh, turned around in 2015, you know, and just, just to do the boring bit first, you know, the UK productivity performance had flatlined uh, after the financial crisis. By the way, most countries had, but the UK didn't bounce back. And government, Cameron and Osborne were very sort of obsessed with UK productivity and why wasn't it bouncing back? And Charlie Mayfield said, I'm not sure government can fix this. And he said, I actually think this needs to be business-led because producti- national productivity, you know, this big economic chat about productivity, all it is is the sum of productivity of individual businesses. Mm, So yes, in theory, it's an economics concept, but it's actually how good are our businesses? And uh, Charlie Mayfield did a, spent a year reviewing this with lots of economists and consultants and lots of chairman and CEOs of FTSE companies and basically concluded that the way to tackle the UK productivity problem was to sort of inspire every business around the country, big and small, to basically do the management and technology practices that we know drive up firm productivity. So we don't think there is a productivity puzzle. We think that actually businesses know how to build their productivity and performance and competitiveness, whatever word you want to use. Uh, It's just that enough of us don't do it and enough of us are not copying from the best and enough of us for a whole range of complicated reasons don't spend the time to improve the productivity and performance of our businesses. And so the idea of Be The Business was to create a movement, a campaign, to raise awareness of the issue, to engage people in this, and to give them, frankly, the tips and tricks about how to run your business better, not just this month or next month, but how to build high-performing, productive businesses that are going to be better a year from now, two years from now. That's what we do. So you mentioned management practices and technology there. So do you think it's more of one or the other? And also, why, why aren't they doing that more? Because that just feels like that would, particularly in smaller business, that would drive profit, right? So yeah. that feels like a really well, I think that big it's, gap to breach. I mean, I think, uh, well, look, I think we think leadership and management is critical <clears throat> to business success. And certainly if you're trying to, as we are, trying to you know, make an intervention, I sometimes say we're sort of in the acupuncture business. You know, we're only an organization of 25 people. And we're trying to somehow stimulate this improved performance and productivity of British business. And what we've said is, actually, you need to target the leadership and management of firms. Why? I think it's exactly the same reason, by the way, if you're trying to do reform the school system, you target head teachers. It's just mm-hmm. a highly okay. effective yeah. way yeah. to get at it. And also, the truth is, business leaders or managers provide the climate in which people are either productive or not, in which they are the best of themselves and they can do their best work or they can. And so I don't think there's an employee problem in Britain. I do think we need business leaders and managers who can get the best from employees by providing the right environments and deploying people in the right way. Uh, So that's what I'm trying to do. It's incredibly hard. I think we are trying to popularise uh, and humanize the benefits of great management practices and technology practices. 
And certainly in the SME sector, in the small and medium enterprise sector, people are very, very stretched for time and capacity. If, you know, if you're running a, a small business, I don't know, 10 to 50 employees, you're probably the head of sales and you're probably you know, the one doing the accounts. And yep. the idea that you would take some time out to research what's the right technology platform for my business or that you've got the time and capacity to try and introduce a new performance management system for employees that gives them lots of development feedback and so on. Most of the small business leaders I meet, these things are important to them, but they simply don't have the capacity to work on them. Uh, and so that's our job, really, which is to essentially popularize uh, great management technology practices and to show people how actually, if you can take a bit of time out of your business to work on these things as the owner or leader of a business, they have huge return in the long run. And it's a bit like, I remember years ago, I did a thing with the Design Council and it was essentially a program that the Design Council had put together in order to convince small businesses that design was a really important yeah. thing to invest money in. And I kind of knew I should investigate design, but the fact that this program came along and said, hey, we'll give you some really you know, expensive resources for free as part of this program and give you that support, give you that help. It was like, okay, I will drop the other things that I, at the moment, deem as more important than that in order to get there, right? So is that part of it? Is it like, yeah, well, job I is think, to provide the carrots that mean people say, okay, this is right here, right now. It's going to be easier if I do this now than at any other point. So. Well, yeah, I think, look, I think the thing we've learned, I mean, we've been going for a year and I think the thing we've learned above all about how can you engage firms in doing this stuff? How can you engage managers in doing this stuff? Is that people are often completely disinterested in this stuff until the point that they're very interested in this stuff. Mm -hmm. There is something that happens yeah. to you. There is a turning point or a trigger point where in your business, it's time to think about the way you are running things. Uh, so it's time to stop running things and think about the way you're running things. And that happens for different reasons. So for example, in the hospitality sector, we're doing a lot of work in Cornwall with hospitality businesses, restaurants and hotels. They have, you know, Brexit's already happened in Cornwall. You know, loads of, of labor left Cornwall in the last right. year. Okay, yeah. You cannot hire for love nor money mm. in your hotel or your restaurant. You can't hire chefs, you can't hire mm. front of house people. And so they are all of a sudden deeply interested in their firm's productivity. How on earth are we going to get more or as much with less staff? Mm. So that's one scenario. Uh, firms that have usually been growing and growing and then all of a sudden they flatline. They lose a major contract or, frankly, you know, they've just hit a point, a ceiling where they're not growing anymore. Mm. All of a sudden, managers will turn around and go, we need to think differently about this. Or a family firm. If you're a family firm and you all of a sudden you're thinking about succession, I want my son or daughter to take over the business, then that's just a moment where a firm starts to think about this kind of stuff. And I guess the same is true with personal productivity, right? And our personal work-life balance, which is we're usually too busy to worry about that stuff until the point that for some reason, I'm going to start worrying about it. Yeah. Uh, and that's the truth with businesses too. Mm. There's just a point, uh, and I think it is predictable if we could get smart at this, where somebody running a business is going to be in the market for a way of thinking about it differently. Mm. And our job's to get the right intervention, uh, at the right time to the right person. Do you know what that just really reminded me of is um, that Michael Gerber line in the E-Myth where he says, work on your business, not in your business. Yeah. And that, for me, was so central to the first few years of building Think Productive and actually even probably before that as well. And it's one of those things where you think, 
man, some people haven't heard that or are not doing that or, you know, like, and for me, that just became such the, it just became my way of operating is to try and work on the business, not in the business and just always have that at, at kind of front of mind. And I'd kind of forgotten about it a little bit because it's just one of those ingrained things now that it's kind of in the way I think, but it's a very powerful idea, right? It is totally what we are completely rooted in, that idea. Mm. And it's totally what we're always trying to preach. So much so that we now, you know, we have a bit of fun with it in the office as being the ultimate cliche of be the business, but it's exactly what we're trying to do. Yeah. And the truth is it's very hard to convince people, certainly smaller enterprises that don't necessarily have the capacity to have, you know, management sit back and work for the long run because they're working on a month-to-month basis. But it's exactly right. And all the case studies, by the way, of successful turnarounds or businesses that grew, uh, somebody somewhere did exactly that. Mm. So you've got a small team, 20-odd people, and it's about transforming basically the entire UK economy, right? So it's like a small team, very big vision that you're working on around this idea of productivity. Um, I'm doing the same with personal productivity. Um, I sometimes feel that running a company that's about personal productivity, I create a rod for my own back in that everybody scuttles around before they meet me and all this kind of thing. Oh, make sure I'm on time. And, you know, like everyone's kind of worried because I'm the productivity guy. And actually, it the reverse is worse, right? Which is that I'm worried the whole time going, oh, I better make sure this email's on time. Like every single thing I do. Do you find the same thing with your team that like you're off out talking to people about productivity in the economy and productivity in businesses? Do people go, oh, need to sort of act a bit differently around you guys? Are you kind of yeah, even well, conscious of that the whole time? It's very funny because people that I meet in this job, they all say to me, oh, here he comes, Mr. Productive. Yes. Which all my friends <laughs> and colleagues find hilarious because I'm clearly not personally productive. I have an excuse, by the way. You don't have an excuse. I just need my, the business to be productive. You need to be personally productive. Uh, yeah, I think that, look, I think that uh, one of the things we do do is the stuff that we preach. So we have a benchmarking tool. Go on the website and take the benchmarking tool. The things that we preach about good management practice and good technology practices, uh, we do occasionally stop and go, right, everybody, it's time to score ourselves. Uh, And it's hard. I mean, it's a great thing to do because actually changing the way your firm behaves and performs is not easy. And one of the interesting things that surprised me most in the last year is that there was this phrase that I kept hearing at the beginning, which is, you know, it's the 1% changes. It's the incremental gains. Uh, you know, and there's the Dave Brailsford and Clive Woodward stuff about high performance. You know, you can't change everything. You just have to change one thing and then the next thing and then mm. the next thing. And I was a bit skeptical of that. I thought, no, firms need to do major transformations and they need to rip stuff off and they need to go at it big. But actually, I was wrong. I mean, most I've been spending the last year going up and down the country and talking to lots of people about their businesses. And people that get results do this 1% change thing. They just make incremental gains every day, every week, every month. Uh, Because it's pretty hard to change the way a business operates day to day. And unless you tackle it small thing by small thing, it's probably not doable. So that's one of the great lessons. I don't know if that's true of personal productivity, by the way. If all of a sudden we should all be making New Year's resolutions and being a different version of ourselves. Or if, as I suspect, because I've also read your book, actually you start by making one change and in turn you do the next and so it builds. Yeah. Uh, well, let me throw that question back to you then. What, what, what do you, which of those two things do you do? And what have you learned about your personal productivity over the last year in setting up a, a brand new organization and, and getting that going? 
Well, I, I mean, I think this is, I think it's quite hard. I mean, I'm worried that I'm cheating because essentially what I do, because I have the luxury of being the boss, is I hire people. You know, my entire approach to my own personal productivity is to hire people <laughs> uh, who, and then to become a coach of their success. Mm. So I think a lot of the time what I'm doing is helping the people around me, kicking them off. You know, I do give direction. There are things I want to achieve. There are things I want to get done and, and timeframes in which I want to get them done. But I basically try and really invest at the beginning of a project or an exercise or an objective with the folks who are going to do it to ensure that we all sort of, we're all on the same page about what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And at that stage, I put in a lot of myself to the kickoff. And then I let them go. And I just stay in touch. You know, I'll do a once a week check-in or a 15-minute check-in just to help unblock stuff or give a reminder of what I was hoping we'd achieve. So it's very uh, kickoff and coach in the way I manage, I think, rather than, right, everybody, you know, here's what we're going to do. And then I'm going to check in next week is whether or not you've done actions one to four. I can't, it's just not me working that way. I'm not an actions and follow up and tick them off kind of guy. I'm more a get great people around you, give them the autonomy, uh, but coach them thereafter. And what do you think, I mean, maybe just reflecting on be the business, but maybe reflecting on your entire career to date, what do you think makes a good team? How do you, how do you find the right pieces to fit together to make a good team? I think, I think high, so great team, high performing teams are teams that are incredibly frank with each other and are therefore very good at dealing with the bad bits, the problems. Mm. Uh, no, that sounds like a very negative way to describe a high-performing team. You know, high-performing teams are all the things we know about, like, you know, everyone, there's the right balance of strengths and all that stuff, and then there's high energy and all that stuff, and they agree on a mission. All of that is right, but I think high-performing teams can row with each other, <laughs> and they don't leave stuff outside the room. You know, I've worked in places in my career where the supposed room where the decision was being made or the team was functioning was actually a show mm, and yeah. stuff was happening yeah. down the corridor in someone's office or at the pub after work or by the water cooler. Do you want to name places? I really don't. <laughs> uh, but they, so for me, and I've been trying to do this, I think it shocked some of my colleagues right from the beginning. I've put everything in the room. Right. It's very, I mean, I'm very lucky. I basically started a team from scratch and therefore I've been able to do what I think is the right thing. But I always try and make sure our team, whether or not it's our senior team or them with their teams, you put stuff in the room right from the mm. beginning. You flush it out right from the beginning because high-performing teams can row well as yeah. well as perform well. How do you manage rowing well, particularly in the sort of societal context of, I guess the societal context at the moment is people find the idea of offence very difficult, yeah. right? How do, you, how do you create the safety to allow people to row well? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, the thing that's hard about it is that people have got different personality traits. Right? Some people are thick-skinned, some people are thin-skinned. Mm. 
Uh, and the hardest thing to do is to have, uh, you know, thin-skinned people not take offense when thick-skinned people don't mean offense. Yeah. And, or, or vice versa, by the way. How can you make sure that thick-skinned people can hear stuff? Uh, I just think you do it with the generosity of spirit. And also you create license for it. So I said in my teams right in the beginning, right, we're always going to voice what's on our minds. If we're worried about stuff, we're going to voice it. And no one's going to be offended because it's not personal. By the way, if it's personal, then we'll stop it and someone will call you out. Yeah. But, and you have to, and you have to role model it. I mean, you mm. just have to role model it. You have to say, you know, I, when I have one-to-ones with my team, I'll say to them, I'm really worried about this or I heard you say that and I wasn't happy. And I'll ask for feedback. You know, did I, how was I in that meeting? Did it mm. upset you when I said this? Now, maybe that all sounds very touchy-feely, but I think if you do that early with a team as a team is forming, uh, then it gets very good. You know, you know what's that, that sort of management riff, you know, teams that forming, storming, norming, performing. Uh, you know, there's, there is storming when you're putting together teams. Mm. Uh, but if you can get through it, if you can sort of run into it, I think you get really high-performing teams. Um, your previous job was at The Guardian. Yep. And I'm really interested that your particular role with that was to lead on strategy yeah. for The Guardian. I mean, it sort of feels a bit, this is almost like a little parallel there, isn't there, in, in that like the current job is small team of people, huge, big challenge. Yeah. And then strategy for an industry that is really struggling yeah, as yeah. print media dies and all the rest of it. Like yeah. strategy for The Guardian is possibly like the most poisoned chalice within The Guardian, yeah. isn't it? Like, so... Uh, yeah, what are your reflections on that and, and what do you think strategy needs to be for guard, The Guardian and others in that industry going forward? Look, I think it's, uh, I now see on reflection, it was sort of the ultimate productivity challenge, mm. which is, you know, The Guardian, uh, Guardian's very lucky. It's a global, essentially it's a global news brand. And because of the digital age, it's global news can reach literally hundreds of millions of people. Uh, and you wanted to keep doing that you wanted to do it with less money uh, in terms of cost because of the economics of the newspaper business. And you also wanted to deepen the customer relationship or in The Guardian, we called it the reader relationship. And essentially that became the strategy and they're now uh, nearly three years into it, which essentially is to focus on readers and creating value for readers uh, and asking them to pay for journalism, <coughs> even though on the internet you can get it for free. Uh, try and find ways to sustain that level of output and relevance around the world, but frankly, to cut costs. You know, the Guardian cut a lot of cost. Anybody that works in the media content business in today's world is cutting a lot of cost because of the, you know, dominance of of platforms. You know, Google, Facebook, others. Uh, you have to find ways to publish high quality stuff for less, and you need to find customers for it who are going to come direct to your brand rather than just, frankly, go to aggregators like Facebook or Google or whoever. Uh, And it was challenging but invigorating. Uh, And I now realize on reflection it was sort of the ultimate productivity challenge. Mm. Because productivity is an efficiency, by the way. I mean, it can be efficiency. But productivity is about getting more. For me, productivity is about getting more for the resources you have. That's Mm. really what it's about. It's about being the best business you can be with the assets that you've got. and so sometimes it's about efficiency. Sometimes, frankly, you've got to cut cost. But most of the time, it's about the top line, the growth, the revenue side. Yeah. It's about just producing the best products and services you can with the talent that you've got. Um, did you have 
I presume you had a lot of conversations about paywalls. Yeah. And so if I think about my experience with the Times, yep. it tends to be that someone on Twitter shares a thing and I go, oh, that looks quite interesting. And I click on it. Oh, yeah. now I've got to log in or whatever and it's a real hassle and, and whatever. Whereas with The Guardian, it feels like your mate because you you read the whole story and then at the bottom there's that thing that goes, oh, well, you're here, you know, and it just feels like a nice auntie or a nice kind of friendly person kind of uh, telling you a thing. So, like, was that a very deliberate thing yeah. is to make it a way to build the relationship rather than... Because I feel slightly guilty when I read The Guardian and don't... And don't... Well, good, I think that's what in, But that's the idea, right? Yeah, look, the, the strategy was called the relationship strategy and it was, it was the idea that uh, in a world of omnipresent news and information, in a world where I can go onto my phone and I can frankly find out for free what's happening in the world and I can read what everybody thinks about it on Twitter, and uh, then actually, uh, what's the role of a news organisation or a media company? And we recognised at The Guardian that it was actually the relationship with your readers, that you needed to be relevant to their life, and that was sort of the beginning of uh, what now is, you know, that contributor uh, and supporter strategy. I think also, I mean, to be realistic and far less romantic about it, the BBC has no paywall. You know, mm. the UK is very unusual. It has, you know, the sort of dominant news provider is got a bunch of high quality journalists, lots of them producing very good news in text and media for free. I mean, it's not for free because we all pay the license fee. But it's free at the point of use. And that makes it very hard for UK media players to have paywalls. Uh, and it's why you have the frustration you mm. have with the Times because yeah. you're used to getting you just used to it. Yeah. And you're used to getting yeah. high quality news for free. Uh, it's a bit easier in other markets. But then it wasn't a BBC journalist that broke the Aaron Banks yeah. funding story, right? So mm. you look at, and that's the thing that for me feels worrying about the age that we're in in terms of media and journalism is just the idea of that quality journalism like um, Carol um, Cadwalla. Yeah. Um, that must be really difficult to justify on a balance sheet that is dwindling in that kind of way, right? Yeah, you know, investigative journalism, uh, I remember, you know, working in the news business, investigative journalism can never be justified on a sort of month-to-month P&L basis. Mm. At the same time, if you're not doing investigative journalism like that, you're not building the brand and the trust that, frankly, is the whole basis of your uh, of your footprint over time. Yeah. So it's one of those things that uh, you know it's it's probably on the balance sheet, but not on the P and L. Okay. And just to sort of finish the career bi- biography bit. So and. Before that, you also worked at the Treasury. Yeah, I was a special advisor uh, on government expenditure in 2008-2010, which was an incredible experience. That. <laughs> so uh, that's another one of those, like, let's pick off the biggest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, I, I went into government uh, a week after Lehman Brothers. Wow, okay. Which was, I mean, it was sort of thrilling and important because it felt like it, it was a time where, let's be honest, government was utterly central to mm. most things at that stage. Uh, and People I'd, forget really now, don't they, how much the government did at that time. Like if the government hadn't have bailed out the banks in the way yeah. that they did, we'd have been absolutely screwed. And it's almost been forgotten that that was such a big. Act, yeah. And you also, know. you know, when I, 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 you know, so my first year working in government was the banking crisis. And it was a time when government was at its best. It was a time when Gordon Brown as prime minister was at his best. Uh, 
and it really was, you know, a time when government took bold leadership action mm. uh, to sustain the economy. And then a year later, there was the expenses crisis. Yeah. And uh, when, you know, which was one of many moments where, you know, politics and government uh, was sort of, you know, back in disgrace again with the public. So it was a weird time because it was sort of, you know, politics at its best uh, year one and then politics at its worst year two with the expenses crisis, which, mm. you know, was arguably the nadir of uh, a losing trust by the public in politics, uh, which, as we know, has continued in the Brexit vote and, yeah. you know, in support for more extremist positions. Um, how happy are you that you're not working there now? <laughs> well, I think it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think that Brexit is, you know, in a way, the greatest challenge that if you're a civil servant, you know, if you believe in the power of government, this is the most thrilling and greatest challenge you've ever had to mm. have, right? Yeah. So much of government in the next year, whatever happens, will be deployed to essentially this Brexit transition. Uh so I suspect some civil servants are completely thrilled because government's never been more important. Mm. Others will be, you know, obviously in some sense of dismay or completely overworked yeah. or slightly traumatized at the indecision or the lateness of the decisions. Uh, so I don't know. So am I? Yeah, I guess uh, if I'm being selfish, I'm probably happy that I'm not doing it. But if I'm being selfless, uh, in a way, it's a great time to work in government. Mm. And I suppose indecision in government, if you're a civil servant, what that means is you probably spend three weeks of your life working really hard on a thing, and then a minister comes along and says, that's not the thing, and your work kind of dies. Is, yeah. that, is that a fairly common... Yeah, I think scenario? government... I mean, I, I find working government utterly thrilling. And of course, there's this, there's this notion that, you know, the private sector thinks government's very slow. Uh, and government thinks the private sector is very fast. Mm. And what's really interesting about the prime uh, about government, in my experience, is government decision making can be very slow and cumbersome and indecision and writing drafts and redrafts and so on. It can also be unbelievably quick. Yeah, you know, you could government can take decisions immensely quickly, big important decisions immensely quickly, like taking over the banks. Right, mm. that was a huge decision taken incredibly quickly. And so government at its best uh, is very decisive. Uh, but you're right. There's a lot of make work. There's a lot of scenario planning. There's a lot of what ifs. And because there's so much ministerial turnover or governmental turnover, you know, long-term strategy development or long-term decision-making is very hard in government. Yeah, yeah. How would you describe back then when you worked there the, the culture of that? You know, was it very long weeks? Was it... I worked, I mean, I'd been a management consultant at McKinsey for 10 years previously, which I thought was the hardest you could ever work in life. I worked harder in government. <laughs> but I, I uh, because I loved it so much and it was such an important time, it didn't feel as much hard work. You know, mm, just the adrenaline yeah. pump was high. You were deeply passionate by what you were doing. Uh, people work incredibly hard in government. What's the average clock off time at the end of the day? I, uh, I would be too embarrassed to tell you what my average clock off time was at the end of my government day. Really? Other, to say, other than to say the tube driver used to wake me up on his way out. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was, it was a lot of late hours. It was the financial mm. crisis. Uh, government is always on. The truth is, if you work in government, yeah. you're always on. Uh, 
and so I don't I don't know where where they are on the productivity stakes. You'd have to ask them, mm. or the work life balance stakes. By the way, I think public sector workers and uh, unionized workplaces are very good at being disciplined about hours in a way that's incredibly positive. But I think if the the area of government I was working in, which was central government, yeah, uh, it was really full on. And the culture is, you know, there is just an expectation that yeah. things are happening, you will be there, right? Yeah, but I think it's not presenteeism. It's not that kind of culture where, yeah. you know, why is the office empty? I think the truth is people are quite personally driven. They are, uh, I mean, this is the great, if you work in a mission-driven place, you know, yeah. everybody talks about the productivity of the private sector versus the public sector, the charity sector. Uh, what the private sector struggles to replicate from government or the charity world is the degree of personal commitment and uh, and all the benefits of working in a mission driven place mm. that is hugely mm, yeah. compelling that is hugely compelling and it tends to get the best out of people so uh, yeah it was hard work there was expectation of being there but it was very often a personally driven expectation um, let's talk about what that means for work life balance because even in those kinds of situations where you feel a great sense of mission you want to give your all to it and everything else you do need to rest at points otherwise you will just burn yourself out so work-life balance even in those circumstances is probably even more important yeah how do you switch off when you're in the middle of something like that i think it's really hard i mean i you know i don't have i remember having a conversation with somebody about my work-life balance and I realized that, you know, for me anyway, it was a, there was a sort of, uh, there was a duality to my life. There was work and there was family. And this guy said to me, well, what's the third leg of the stool for you? And I was like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, what is the great passion or the great distraction in your life so that it's not just a constant battle between work and family? You know, is it sport or music or working on a charity part-time, volunteering? Uh, and I realized I didn't have that, really. I have all of those, I just realized. <laughs> you have all of those. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's brilliant. I mean, I, I definitely think that, you know, the people that I've met who've got, the people that I know who've got better work-life balance, as well as trying to get the balance right, not working too hard, emails in the evenings, weekends, all that stuff, which we can talk about, they've also usually got something else. Mm. They're mad keen cyclists. And every Sunday morning or one weekend, you know, every six months, they have a mega cycling weekend or they're, you know, they're a trustee of a charity or they're, you know, they're a local counselor. They're doing something else in their life. I'm not sure I have enough of that in my life, hmm. but I also, because I work so hard because I care about my work so hard, maybe that's the sacrifice, which is, you know, I work very hard and then I try and be the best, you know, husband and father I can be. Do you feel like you're looking for that a bit? Are you sort of looking for what's the big passionate third leg of the stool? I, uh, no, it's one of those things that in my head I know is right, but it's not really, it's not motivating me every day. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not a incredibly dull man without hobbies and passions, right? I don't want to just sounded like A, David Brent, and then B, <laughs> the opposite, a total sort of profession, workaholic machine. You know, I love football. Mm. And there is nothing that distracts me from work more than watching football. Yeah. Uh, I love music. Uh, so, and those things are all utterly vital to making me a normal, sane human being <laughs> and hopefully being better at everything else that I do. But I'm still intrigued at this idea about a third leg to the stool. Mm. Uh, and I don't know that I have it. 
do you also do you think maybe it's more important to have that if you don't necessarily have a sense of mission in your work? So you clearly have a a sense of mission in in what you're doing. Yeah, well, this was the big. This was the great debate. It was one of those nights over you know whiskey where we sort of it all got a bit bit heated. <laughs> because I realized that exactly what you just said, which is for me, a lot of, you know, for, I know lots of people that are, I don't know, bankers or lawyers or, uh, and yes, you're exactly right. They've then got something else in their life that they're deeply passionate about, they care about. A lot of them will do work with charities or on causes. Uh, and yes, I have conflated, you're right, I have conflated my, because I do mission-driven work and will probably, that will not be a big feature of my working life. I have conflated passion with job. Mm. Uh, and the interesting challenge he gave me is, is that really a healthy thing to do? Is it so healthy that your work is that important to you? Uh, does that not make it harder to switch off? And maybe that's right. Maybe that's mm, the price you pay okay. for doing something professionally that you're deeply passionate about. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I was just thinking as you were talking there that I definitely have, you know, I have the... Uh, one night a week volunteering thing. I have my crazy trips to go and watch the Toronto Blue Jays for seven straight days and stuff like that. Uh, and I'm I'm always at music and gigs and all that sort of thing. So I kind of have all that. But I also have the passion and the mission-driven thing in my work. So I was thinking, is it, am I just greedy to watch? Like, no, I, well, that's but then, you know, I think, I think that thing you were just saying there about um, is it harder for the people in the mission-driven Organizations is that healthy? Is it is it harder to switch off because of that? It's, it's a really interesting question, I think. Maybe, or and also maybe it's worth talking to you know. There's uh, someone else I know who's a music journalist who's been writing about music for 25 years and probably now spends less time being passionate about music. So they mm, made it their job. Yeah. Or if you're an artist, I mean, you write books. Do you read a lot of books? I do, but I read them in kind of stages. I go through stages of not wanting to. If I'm right, actually, if, if I'm writing, I don't read. That's yeah. an interesting thing. When I stop writing, I read. Yeah. That's yeah. I never really thought. I that think before. you're a horrifically well-balanced person, right? <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think I should spend any more time with you. Whatsoever. You've got it two together. <laughs> well, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure we'll uncover the, all the reasons why that's not the case later on. Um, so um, let's talk a little bit more about um, your own. Uh, productivity. So, you, so you're very uh, deferential before in saying um, it's about hiring good people, and then it's it's they who are productive. But like, what do you think they would say about your own, uh, like, not necessarily about your productivity, but perhaps about like the strengths that you've um, brought into their work as well? well? What do you think they would say about you? I I think. Uh... This is like an interview question. Isn't it? What would your team? I yeah. think this, I do this at interviews. I say, you know, and everybody sees through it. What would your team say about you? <laughs> Which is clearly a new way of saying what are your weaknesses? Uh, I look. I think the two things that I, the two elements of my leadership style, I think probably are communication. I'm usually uh, not always, but I'm often the guy in the room that tells the story best, that frames the challenge best, that uh, has got the best account of what we're doing and why we're trying to do it. And I think that's incredibly important. Uh, and the second one is coaching. You know, I'm deeply interested in the career development of the people around me. It's a great book called Drive mm, by Dan Pink. Have yeah. you read it? Yeah. And for those of you who haven't, read it uh it talks about motivating people in today's world as opposed to you know an older world where there was more command and control and frankly the only lever to motivate people was pay 
And he talks about three ways, three things that you need to motivate people in today's workforce being purpose, mastery, and autonomy. Purpose is I really believe in what I'm doing and I'm, I'm proud to be doing it. Mastery is I'm technically very good at something, something I can be really proud of. And autonomy is I don't have a boss that's micromanaging me. And I really like those three concepts. And I think what I try and do is make people that work in this organization feel they have all three of those. And I'm coaching. My job is to coach. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes as a CEO, you need to be very directive. You know, you're accountable to the organization's success and therefore you need to pass that on. Mm. Uh, so I hope I set high expectations of what we actually need to get done. Uh, but most of the time, I think they'll think I'm the communicator and I'm the coach. Yeah. I think it's in that because while he talks about um, pay rises are basically useless as a motivation tool. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you give someone a, a job title rise rather than a pay rise, yeah. you, know, you give them a greater sense of purpose, don't you? And yeah. you give them that sense that they are mastering something. And uh, Yeah, I mean, he, he does autonomy. say, so that's, yeah, that's a bit of a sort of edgy part of the book where it's kind of like, you know, pay rises don't work. Uh, I think he does also say, but you need to have a threshold level of decent <laughs> Yeah, that's it, within, uh, within a... But that is, I mean, I, in my experience, you know, Pay rises are important, uh, and they're particularly important if you don't have a culture where there are other ways of demonstrating to people they're valuable mm. to you. Um, let's talk about when you don't feel motivated. Mm. So what are the things that really get you down with the work that you do? The thing I find hardest is, uh, is office politics. I don't like office politics. And I think it comes back to the thing we were talking about earlier about high-performing teams. And constructively uh, rowing. Yeah, yeah, I just, you know, we spend a lot of our time at work. And when I see dysfunctional office environments or politics breaking out, uh, I think that's bad, bad, bad. And it's the thing that stresses me out about my own organization. I mean, actually, we're brand new. We're, we're still at the honeymoon stage where everyone's getting on incredibly well. Uh, but in places that I've worked in the past, wherever there's been office politics, I find it incredibly debilitating and stressful. Mm. And by the way, I worked in politics. What's the office well, politics no, like? Well, the great thing about politics is that everybody stabs everyone else in the front. Yes. You know what I mean? In offices, people stab each other in the back. In politics, they just stab you in the front. Uh, I guess you worked in the era of Gordon Brown as Prime Minister, not in the era where Gordon Brown and Tony Blair were completely no, yeah, loggerheads. Yeah, yeah. So you so missed that. that would have been, yeah. I'm sure it was all still... I'm sure it was uh, yeah. a lot of that, stabbing <laughs> in the back and the front. But uh, yeah, I don't like workplaces where things don't work. The, the thing that I hate most is the notion of coming into work feeling anxious. Mm. That feels to me, a, you know, if you are in a place in your life where you're feeling anxious going into work and relieved leaving the office at the end of the That's day. It's such a horrible It's feeling, a horrible isn't state it? of affairs. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, a lot of people don't get the choice. A lot of people don't have the choice to change that. Yeah. Uh, but as a manager or a boss, I feel it is my responsibility that people will come into work, maybe not overjoyed and excited, but certainly, you know, pretty motivated and not feeling that they're going to have a bad day, feeling mm. that they're going to ha have a good day where this is an environment where they can do their best work. Yeah. So if that's not happening, and of course, that is what most workplaces are normally like, there's normally a bit of that going on, I find that very stressful. Mm. Uh, and then, so that, so that's very much about what you see in the people around you, and the office politics is the where where you start to see that embodied in the people around you. 
are there things that get you particularly anxious or where you start to feel like I'm, you know, really too challenged or, or too stressed here? And what, what would those be? Well, I mean, you sort of, you catch me in a good moment. I'm one year into a job, which I'm utterly loving and I'm <laughs> feeling unbelievably fulfilled in my career. So I'm probably incredibly poor listening for that in that respect. But I think, uh, I think I had, I don't know if you had this, it's so bloody cliched and classic. Probably when I sort of turned 40, like old men who have midlife crises, mm-hmm. uh, I think up until I got this job, I was constantly, constantly sort of working it too hard to try and achieve, didn't know really what I wanted to do, uh, was constantly stressed about whether or not I was doing the right things and achieving enough. Uh, and so that was a more stressful time in my life, personally. Mm. Uh now I feel I'm in the right job. I wish I'd worked out that this was the kind of job I should have been doing sooner. Uh, and so, no, my levels of personal stress are pretty low, to be yeah, honest. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, as my wife and friends would tell you, uh, that's new news. <laughs> so I don't want to pretend that all of a sudden that's... But that's. I'm very lucky that I've found something that's giving me that kind of joy, to be honest. Mm. I turned 40 in October, so I'm, I'm, oh, a, I, I'm a new recruit to... Oh. Uh, to, I'm really sorry. Um, and one of the things I've been thinking about a little bit since, so I didn't have a crisis. I just had a massive piss up on my birthday, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, but one of the things I've been sort of thinking about since is when you think about if, if you look at your career as being between the ages of 20 and 60, and I know it always ends up being, yeah. for me, I was doing a, paper rounds and setting up setting up my first business washing cars in the local neighborhood when I was about 11 or something That's so impressive. I've been working for a long time um, but yeah. if you look at sort of 20 to 60 as being the sort yeah. of peak years of a, a career and there'll of course be a few years uh, both sides of that but if you look at those peak years when you hit 40 you're then halfway through yeah so do you think there's a I've kind of always had a mentality which seems quite similar to what you're just describing there in your earlier years where it's like you're constantly kind of striving for like the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And you're trying to figure out what you like, you're you're kind of CV building and working out what you need to be, to be successful in work. And then I feel like I've got to 40 and it's like, oh, not necessarily it's like I'm done, brilliant, yeah, hey, but more so that, if I'm going to continue to CV build and everything else, I'm kind of running out of time, right? So yeah, yeah. there's that, that side of it. And so that, I think, to me, it makes me go, well, I'll never be an astronaut, but that's okay now. Do you well, guess, you, well, do you, you know have achieved, well I think you have achieved wisdom in your life beyond your years, Graham, because most of my sort of surveying of this is that all the 40-year-old men I knew uh, are generally traumatized that they're not sort of achieving enough and they're still, they still want to give it one big last push to try and realize their dreams and become rock stars or whatever it is. <laughs> and all the men I ever spoke to who are 50 uh. are kind of so over it. <laughs> and they're just totally at peace with themselves. I think you're at peace, so, so I think you're at peace with yourself too early. Trapped in a 50-year-old's mind. Yes, you are. I think you should yeah. be more stressed. I mean, look, I, so I think you're right. Look, I, well, put it this way. I always advise people that work for me who are in their 20s or 30s that the most important thing they should do is is learn, is mm. tackle the things they're not good at because they won't get a chance to do that once they're 40. Uh, you know, they should really get, you know, if you're not good at, you know, doing budgeting and analytics and finance, then have a crack at it. If you're not good at public speaking, then have a crack at it. 
I do think once you sort of turn 40 and you've had 20 years, you should be in the sort of scoring runs, right? You should be the number three batsman that comes mm, on and hits sixes. Yeah. That said, I mean, because we're all living longer, I think the game is changing somewhat. I mean, I, when I went and did a master's degree in the States in 2004, and it was called the Mid-Career Masters. And, I read uh, that on your CV and I thought, yeah. you don't look that old oh, for that. No, well, I mean, I was 31 when yeah. I did the Mid-Career Masters. So that's which is not Mid-Career, is it? No, it's entirely ludicrous. What was really interesting was there were three surgeons from the US who were 55 on my course. And they had finished 30-year careers in medicine. And because it was the US, they'd made lots of money. Uh, and they were coming to do a master's to work out what they were going to do for the next 20 years of their career. Mm. Because they hopefully were going to be fit and able. And where they were, even if they weren't going to be on maximum earning capacity at the age of 70, they anticipated that they would be working and meaningfully deployed. And so I think maybe these adages that we've always had about, well, in your 20s, you, and when you're 40, you, maybe we're just wrong. And actually, maybe it's a longer game and we haven't quite realized it. And so we're in a rush when we don't need to be in a rush. Yeah. Obviously, we're at this massive sort of crossroads piece with Brexit. Like, what do you think, uh, what's your sense of what British businesses want out of that? Not necessarily whether they want to kind of leave or remain, but what's the kind of... Uh, sense of where we need to be in 12 months time yeah. if you looked at the end of 2019? Oh, look, I think that's a good question. I, uh, I think there are two ways to argue Brexit and productivity or Brexit and business. One is to say, let's not sugarcoat uh, the complete uh, disruption of Brexit on lots of businesses. I was just with somebody this morning who was telling me you know, they and their uh, clients, which were a major bank, were reading through millions of documents and, you know, were working through their GDPR requirements. And, you know, there's a hell of a lot of complexity and people are going to be spending a lot of 2019 doing stuff they would otherwise not have to do, which will, by obvious extension, be highly unproductive. And therefore, maybe the country will take a productivity hit. The one thing I would say on the upside is I think that our competitiveness as a nation has never been more important. When I go around the country and talk to businesses mm. about you know, productivity and you know, their eyes glaze over and you talk to them about improve your performance, everyone's kind of like, yeah, yeah, I heard it before. Uh, I did this little experiment for a few uh, months where I said, how are we going to compete as a nation after March 2019? And everybody listened. And I do think the exam question for Britain in 2019 is going to be, how can we use this disruption, this moment, as the moment where we got our competitive act together as a country? Where we literally took very seriously whether or not it's you and your own, whether or not it's you and the company you work, whether or not it's the manager and owner of a firm, whether or not it's your sector or your region or the whole country, how are we going to compete in the world after Brexit? And the hope would be, because let's finish positive, the hope would be that we as a country use this as a moment to say, right, we're going to work smarter. Uh, We're going to be much more thoughtful about how to compete. And we're going to take it, you know, we're going to have a London 2012 moment. We're going to wave a British flag and say, we in Britain are going to post-Brexit be more match fit and more competitive than ever before. 
and maybe we'll have a galvanizing spirit which sees an uplift in our productivity and hopefully over time our wages. So in short, we're going to make everyone productivity ninjas. That's the Let, there it is. <laughs> Can't believe you use that as a plug for your book. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, but I think, I mean, just to finish, I would say that the the mission that you guys are on, it, I mean, it's just hugely important to us all, isn't it? So um, just a real privilege to just spend time and talk about that more and um, look forward to more of that next year as well. You too. Come back cool. when you're 50 and we'll see how you feel. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. Take care. So thanks again to Tony for being on the show. And I think you'll agree, just an organization and a man on a mission. And uh, it's a very good uh, thing to be involved with. So we'll be certainly trying to do all we can to help what Tony's doing at, at, at Be The Business from a Think Productive point of view as well. Um, thanks to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show. And um, particularly with this last episode of the year, turning this round quickly so that we can get it out before Christmas. So as always, appreciate um, Mark's work, but particularly appreciate it when he is under some time pressure, mainly down to me. So, um, so thanks, Mark. Thanks also to Think Productive, who are the sponsors of this podcast. Go to thinkproductive.com if you want to find out more about productivity workshops and bringing what we do to a team near you soon. Um, that is it for 2018. Been a phenomenal year and lots to look back on. And I'm going to be doing that particularly uh, next week in Brighton is burning the clocks. So it's the winter solstice celebration uh, a few days away from uh, when I'm recording this right now. And it's a time where everybody brings these elaborate uh, lanterns that they've designed and made uh, out of glue and kind of papier-mâché and all this stuff that you get in these kits. And then we burn them all on the beach and this kind of big ceremonial thing of uh, this is now ended, a whole new thing is starting. And um, for me, that's always a kind of uh, big high point of the year, just this whole period of reflection and kind of starting to look forward. So I hope you're getting into that mode, starting to think about what you want for 2019. I encourage you to just make some space over the next couple of weeks to make that happen. I'll certainly be doing that. Uh, keep warm and I will see you in 2019. Have a great Christmas break. See you soon. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by Podient. To find out more, visit podiumproductions.com.